Good morning. The um, Bible reading this morning is uh, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. It's on page 983 in the Black Bibles in front of you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, what do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him to one side and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, it's great to be back again, and uh, um, it's the third time in three years. Uh, you're probably noticing the haircut. I got that from Rocky down the road here, um, your own barber, calling it a manly haircut. <laughs> but uh, going to Rocky, he uh, didn't give me simply a haircut, he gave me an experience, and I don't think I'll ever forget the stories he told. He's a very funny man. It's great, it is good to be here, and... Uh, I like to sort of uh, acclimatise myself. You notice I'm wearing the Scott Petty look? <laughs> eh? All things to all men, eh? <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're such a good God, Lord. We thank you for not hiding yourself but making yourself known. But without your will, Father, and without your spirit, we would not be able to understand. We'd be able to cognitively get ideas, but we would not be able to internalise them and receive them were it not for your spirit. 
We are utterly dependent on you, Lord. So now as we hear your word, whether it's in line with what we naturally think or not, we would ask, Father, that we would believe not what Ray Galea says, but what your scripture says today, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered that the greats of the Bible weren't so great? David, midlife crisis, 2 Samuel 11, decides to sleep with his bodyguard's wife and then to cover the pregnancy, decides to take out the bodyguard. Paul, really functioned as a first century jihad terrorist until Jesus came along and changed him. Perhaps no New Testament figure's failures are more portrayed than dear old Peter. Um, In the month of January, you're doing a series uh, titled Mistakes Peter Make, Regrets I've Had a Few. It's from the great, or not so great, Sinatra classic, I Did It My Way. I don't know if you realise, there was, a few years ago, it was the most popular song played at funerals, which has its own tragedy element to it. At one level, when you think of Peter's failures that that you'll be looking at, have been today and will again throughout January, you can't help but think there's a comfort in it. So close to Jesus, so central, uh, so senior, first among equals amongst the apostles. And you think, well, he really did botch it up, as we'll see today. And we can't help but take comfort because if God can forgive him, perhaps you're wondering, maybe he can forgive you. And if God can use someone like Peter, maybe he can use someone like you. In Matthew's Gospel, it's the first of four accounts of the life of Jesus, where in chapter 16... I apologise, the, the, the verses on the screen that we're going to look at from the old NIV, and so they tend to refer to man rather than person. I apologise. I don't know. My fault. It was the, the mistake comes from me. I don't know why it came out that way. But anyway, it is what it is. And in Matthew 16, there's a, in a sense, Jesus coming out. It's a major turn in the gospel. And um, he's way up north in a place called Caesarea Philippi, about to set his face to Jerusalem. And we begin... In verse 13, every sentence in the Bible, if you're new to the things of uh, Christianity, every sentence in the Bible has a number. So chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So in Jesus' day, just like today, um, everyone's got a theory about who Jesus is, rightly or wrongly. Disciples take a straw poll and work out there's basically a toss-up between three men. But when all said and done, it really came down to just these men, John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah. So the two things that these three men have in common is this. One, they're all prophets, and two, they're all dead. So after everything Jesus has said and done, the best that the popular poll could come up with was that Jesus was a dead prophet who in some way might have come back. And that's what marks them as outsiders to Jesus. Because what they're functionally doing is bringing Jesus down to size, down to our size. So then in the end, he's just a a better version of you and me. And let's face it, who's going to really bend the knee? Who's going to turn their life upside down? Who's going to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow someone who's just a better version of you and me? Well, virtually every world religion has something nice to say about Jesus. Uh, Many Hindus treat Jesus as a guru. Buddhists and Baha'i love to quote his teachings. Mahatma Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. Islam explicitly declares Jesus one of the great prophets. 
No one's got a bad word. Average person in the street will say, can't stand the church, love Jesus. And really, functionally, what people do is they raise Jesus high enough to accord him a degree of respect, but keep him low enough so that I don't have to worship him. And that's what marks outsiders as outsiders of Jesus. And so then Jesus says, okay, boys, what do you say? You've been with me for three years now. It's important. Jesus doesn't hold the view that all opinions are equally right. And it's worth saying, every world religion, including Christianity, could be wrong. What we can't all be is right. Because we're just simply saying different things. Matthew 16, verse 15. But what about you, he asks. Now he's asking the insiders, what do you say? Who do, people, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Friends, sooner or later, you're going to have to come to terms with this question. It's so fundamental. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? Because your salvation turns on your grasp of his identity. And Peter gets up and I think representing the 12 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it right. No regrets here. Peter wasn't saying, though, Jesus, I know your surname. You know, mum and dad were Mr. and Mrs. Christ. I'm Galea, you're Smith, he's Christ. It doesn't work that way. Christ here is a title, not a surname. Uh, It means a long-awaited, appointed king of Israel and king of kings. It carries its own job description. Uh, It comes anticipated way back a thousand years before in passages like 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2. Let me put it simply though. Say your name is John and your job title was plumber and your job description was to fix steps. Then Jesus, his name, his job title is the Christ, the Messiah. His job description is to rule the universe, including you and me. That's how you need to understand the word Christ. And I found out many years ago there is a billion kilometres, miles, separating someone who has a respect for Jesus and someone who allows Jesus to rule their life. I'm so glad when I was 20 at Sydney University, a friend of mine who'd become a Christian from an atheist background quoted C.S. Lewis, that famous trilemma, and she, she said to me, Ray, you really got to make a decision about Jesus and as to who he is. He's either Lord, lunatic or liar. I'll put it another way. He's either Christ, crazy, or a cult leader. Which is it to be? I knew what she was getting at. If it wasn't my Lord, there were serious implications. She didn't spell them out, but you can't not, ha- you can't not think that buried in the very term, Christ. What's it to be? Well, we know that Peter got it right because Jesus said he got it right. Like I said, there's no regrets. Verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Peter got it right, not because he was godlier than anybody else or smarter. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't ride on the shoulders of really godly people, good people. It really rides on the back of God revealing himself to people. And making it known that the one who hung on the cross hung there for me. That this Jesus, this historical figure in time and space, is indeed the long-awaited king of kings and ruler of the universe. And you think, well, I don't believe that. That's fine. 
then why don't you ask God to reveal it to you and he will. He actually makes a promise. Ask and you will receive. And it was based on that promise I made a decision to start a journey to explore the claims of Christ. Can I commend this cause, soul, uh, as a way of taking the next step? If you want others to believe who you love, who as yet don't love Jesus, why don't you pray to your Father in heaven to reveal himself to that person? Got an email last year from two guys, Matt and uh, Mal and Doug. These were hardcore, heavy drinking, Kawasaki 1300, love to start a fight in a pub kind of guys. I really love them. And I got an email from Doug, and he said to me, Dear Ray, just want to let you know, uh, Mal and I have independently decided to follow Jesus, come to Jesus. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I've been praying for these dudes for 30 years. And God, in his kindness, answered the prayer and revealed himself to them. Matthew 16, verse 18. Peter's confession of Jesus will be pivotal in building his church. Verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or death, will not overcome it. Let's pick up the promise first there. The promise is simply this. No matter how bad it gets in time and place in the history of the, of the world, no matter what the devil and death throw at the church, it will not be destroyed of that you can guarantee, because there's a promise here. It's a promise of assurance and comfort to every one of us. The, uh, let me put it another way. The only thing you can be guaranteed that's going to be here when Jesus returns is the church. It may not specifically be St. Matt's Manly, but the church of God will be here when Jesus returns. There is not one company, including Apple, not one career, not one of the 193 nations that make up the United Nations, not one political constitution that is guaranteed, may be here, but it's not guaranteed to be here when Jesus turns up, but the church will be. So don't get despondent. At any given time and place, it might be on the way up or down, but God is at work and he is building his church. So get with the plan. Whatever you do in 2016, Get with this plan because it is God's plan and Jesus is building the church and he wants you to be partners with him in it. In uh, just, a, just a two, piece, two windows into how he has built the church in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, 1900, um, 9% of Africa, the continent of Africa, was declaring itself to be Christian. At the end of that century... 44% of Africa's 1.1 billion people are declaring themselves to be Christian. How is that possible? See how it's possible? Because Jesus is building his church and nothing's going to stand against it. Uh, we know of China, uh, where missionaries were kicked out in 1947 under Mao Zedong. Everyone lamented, oh, what's going to happen? Well, God just raised up an army of underground churches so that we know roughly between 70 and 80 million people have become Christians in China over the last 25 years. It's now the third biggest Christian country in the world under an atheistic regime. How is that possible? Tell you how it's possible. Jesus says, I'm building my church and nothing's going to stand against it. And how does Jesus build his church? What would be its foundation? Verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, uh, Jesus renames Simon as Peter, which means rock or rocky, which means Peter's first and second letter would be rocky one, rocky two. Sorry about that. I kind of, it's a bad preacher's joke. 
Jesus said, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's a play on words. A lot of ink's been spilled on this baby. <laughs> uh, denominations have divided on it. Um, and you can read it in, I think, three legitimate ways. The rock is Peter, the apostle, maybe representing all the apostles. Uh, that the rock is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, or the rock is Christ himself. I think all options are possible, but if we want to go back before the Catholic-Protestant divide of the Reformation 500 years ago and before the division between the Orthodox, the Western and Eastern churches, and listen to the early church fathers, this is how they have spread over about eight centuries, seven centuries. This is what they said about that verse. Here's a little summary. 17 of the church fathers believed that the rock was Peter. That would be in line, say, with Roman Catholic thinking that grounds the papacy. 44 of the church fathers, however, believed that the rock was Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 16 of the church fathers believed that the rock was Christ himself, and 8 believed that the rock was the apostles, as Ephesians 2.20 says. I think the majority of you is probably right, and the majority of you is saying then, as I believe it's saying now, that the foundation of the church is ultimately the confession of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the key that unlocks the gates of heaven. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The footnote will kind of, I think, give a better translation. What you bind on earth would have already been bound in heaven. That is, what's happening on earth is not determining what's happening in heaven. It's actually reflecting what's already happened in heaven. And that is, God in heaven has revealed that the key is this, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the only means of forgiveness. And when you receive it, the doors of heaven itself are unlocked and you are set free from the guilt and shame of your sins. We saw Peter unlocking the door, did we not? Um, um, in Pentecost, weeks after Jesus had died and risen, he's preaching to 3,000, a good number of whom had cried out, crucify him. And now, convicted of their sin, that they'd actually murdered the Messiah. If there was an unforgivable sin, it's got to be that one, right? And they are packing it. And they say to Peter, what are we going to do? We've killed the Christ. And he says to them, the very verse that was read out to us in the baptism, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven of all your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter put the key in the door, unlocked it, and opened the door to Christ's killers and said, You too can be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. I guess I want to say to you, friends, it's as true now as it was then. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it matters, but it can't be forgiven. There is nothing you have done that can't be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That's why it's called good news. Equally, there's nothing you've done that can be forgiven if you don't take the key and receive Jesus as your Messiah and King. And every one of us who knows Jesus has that key. And friends, as you know, remember what is the key? The key is not just the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the apostles' gospel. It's Peter's gospel. It was the message that was entrusted to them, passed on to us. You and I can't tamper with that message. I'd love to throw out another gospel. There ain't anyone on the table. This is the only one on offer. 
This is the one that comes from God to the apostles, passed on to us. And you have that key, and I tell you, knowledge is power, and with power comes responsibility. Use it. Use it wisely. For souls are hanging in the balance. Peter got it right. And then, oh boy, did he get it wrong. It's hard to imagine able to get it more wrong than Peter does right now. So take comfort. Because there is no key if there is no Messiah who goes to the cross. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. The stress is on the must. There is a must. This is a, a plan that, that Jesus is following. He's not coming up with this idea himself. And the must is, firstly, you and I must die for the wages of sin. Secondly, Jesus must go to that cross and take full responsibility for every one of those sins so that we don't have to experience a second death. Peter scolds Jesus. He wraps him over the knuckles. No way, Lord. We've got this show. We want to keep it going. We've got big numbers. We've got a nice mega church happening here. We want to keep those numbers running. We do not want you going to... That is not on the agenda. Now, there's something kind of endearing and something stupid about what Peter's doing here. It's endearing because Peter doesn't want... Peter wants to rescue Jesus from himself. He set his attention to going to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be killed. And it's stupid because A, he's just declared Jesus to be the Messiah, and B, he doesn't realise that it's he, like us, who need to be rescued. Jesus does not need to be rescued, it's us. And both, you notice, are emphatic. Peter says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus says, I must go to that cross. I must be immersed in the judgment that your sins deserve. And I must rise to life. You see, for Jesus, a Christ without a cross is no Christ at all. That the only good Messiah is a dead one. Otherwise, we're going nowhere. Otherwise, we will die in our sins. And not one human being will occupy heaven and the age to come. This Peter, who is called the Rock, has now very quickly become a stumbling block. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Woo-hoo. Wow. In five verses, under two minutes, Peter goes from saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, to get out of my sight, Satan. That's what I call one massive demotion. So which is it, friends? Do you think the things of humans or the things of God? Do you side with Satan, which functionally is the same way here, or side with Christ? Is your highest point of appeal reason or the reason faith that Jesus is worthy of your trust in his death and resurrection for the complete forgiveness of your sins? Which is it? Well, Jesus makes it clear who he is, He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What he has come to do to die and rise for our forgiveness. And thirdly, what is our response? Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. For what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That the road of the Messiah will be the road of Messiah's people. Christ doesn't ask anything of you that he himself has not been first prepared to do. He gave his life for us. To put in the words of Romans 5, 8, 9, Christ died for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us while we were enemies. That Christ would give his best, his life, while we were certified enemies. And Jesus wants you to count the cost. I remember doing exactly the same thing in the Hotel Bondi when two of my friends caught wind that I was reading the Bible and thinking of... And they were worried that I was going to fall away from paganism. And, uh, and as they counted the cost, I realised I had a choice. If I was to accept Jesus, it would have to be on his terms. He gave, his, he gave up his life for you. He now says it's time for you to give up your life for me, to deny yourself and your personal preferences and put my priorities before those preferences. Bonhoeffer, who was a, a very famous Christian who was executed under orders from Hitler in 1945, Bonhoeffer made this statement. He said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. That's exactly the Christianity that Jesus is offering. Who are you prepared? What are you prepared to die for? The great enemy of the church, says Bonhoeffer, is two words, cheap grace. I love grace. Saved by grace. Preach grace. Sing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Love grace. There's no salvation without grace. It's all undeserved. But cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is taking the gift but not wanting a bar of the giver. Cheap grace is wanting Christianity but no cross. Cheap grace will justify every sin but not justify the sinner. You know what we do, don't we? It's very easy to slip into it. We pack as much pleasure and comfort into our Christian life that we believe we can have until such time as we cross that line and are no longer a Christian. And we permanently live on the edge of compromise with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And we kind of are neither, we're, you know, we're either pathetic pagans or unfruitful Christians. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not the Christianity that I'm offering you. That's not the Messiah that I'm calling you to follow. He says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And let me tell you, friends, the only people taking up their cross in the first century are on their way to execution. In November last year, I was interviewing a lovely woman who'd become a Christian from an Indian Muslim background. And I said, she was about to marry one of our guys. And I said to Amelia, I said, uh, it was an interview up the front, might be even on our website, I'm not sure. And I said to Amelia, I said, um, uh, what's been the cost of following Christ for you? And she said, well, my family have given strict orders that I am to have nothing to do with them. Parents, sisters, brothers, I'm to have no contact back in India with them. So, wow, and my heart went out. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, uh, you know, and I said, it, it must be so hard and, you know, quick as a flash, almost as though it were a rebuke to me, she said, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on how hard. And she said, 
I said, that's nothing compared to what Jesus did for me. I empathized with the cost. She instinctively focused on what Jesus and the cost it was for him to die for her. Well, that shut me up. Of course it is a cost, and it was worthy of many tears. But given what Jesus has done for us, hmm, they really just don't compare. Friends, there is no other Jesus on the table. There is no other Christianity on offer. This is it. Anyone would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, what good is it? Get out the calculator. Weigh up the pros and cons, the debit and... and, you know, Think like an accountant. Do your sums. He says, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What can a person give in exchange for their soul? The most precious thing you have is you. Don't blow it. And it's very mathematical. He says, what, what good is it? To get it right, I mean get it right in every key area of your life. Relationships, investments, um, housing, employment. To get it right, right, right and get it wrong in Jesus. Gain the whole world, as if who's going to get that anyway? To gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Do you think the things of God or the things of a human? Getting it right about so many things, in the end, doesn't matter. But getting it right about Jesus is so fundamental. It's quite relieving, really. You can have a life living with regrets, get Jesus right, and you've got everything right. It's really quite, there's one thing you've got to get right. I'm into the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Comes down to this. Because you know, you've got a truckload of regrets and so do I. And life goes on. I remember growing up, uh, I grew up on a farm in the western suburbs of Sydney and uh, we were Maltese, market gardeners. Uh, We grew vegetables. Uh, I hated it. Uh, I'm on on the view. If you can't eat it, concrete it. well, actually, that's my dad. You know, that's my dad's view more than me. I really just was not interested in farming and learnt nothing really, but did what I was called to do. But I didn't really like doing it. I remember coming from Perth. It was 1981. I visited some friends in Perth. Came back. I caught that back-breaking bus trip. Three days, two nights, no sleep. I arrive at my parents' place at six in the morning. Really bugged. I'm really tired. And. Uh, and I, I, they, were farm, they were picking cucumbers and washing them before they took them to the markets. And I, and I said, hi, bye, I'm going to sleep. Dad said, I really need you, Ray, to spray some hectares of cabbages to the side of the house. They had bugs in them. And I thought, oh, no, I'm so tired. Anyway, not, re- not willingly, but I did it. I uh, sprayed the cabbages. Two hours later, put the stuff away, went to bed. That afternoon, I woke up. And I'm walking down the hallway on the plastic on the car because, you know, my wog and, you know, we always have plastic on everything. At the end, of the, the end of the hallway is the dining room and the dining room window overlooks the cabbage patch that I just sprayed. And I said, and, and Dad's there scratching his head and I walk up next to him and I said, what's the matter, Dad? He said, Ray, take a look at these cabbages. He said, they, they look wilted. Literally, they look like they had a hangover, you know. Just, and what could be the problem? And, you know, we tossed around a few theories, humidity, too much water, not enough water. By the way, he said, by the way, he said, Ray, what kind of spray did you use? Oh, no, I've been f- spraying all my life. I, I said the Gramic Zone. He said, I don't know what your father did when he got upset, but mine would turn a deep burgundy colour and white froth would sort of accumulate either side of the mouth. I knew I was in trouble. He said, you idiot, you used the wrong spray. 
I don't know if you know anything about sprays. There's a big difference between weedicides and pesticides. Pesticides only kill pests, but they leave plants alone. Weedicides kill everything that's living, you know, cabbages, weeds. Well, I used a weedicide, and without realising, I wiped out hectares of cabbages, thousands of dollars down the drain. But, hey, life goes on. I'm able to laugh at it. You can laugh at it. My dad even eventually got to laugh at it. The good thing was he never let me spray after that, which is, if I, was temp- if I knew that, I might have been tempted a bit earlier. But my, my cousin, oh, in the, 40 years ago, when sprays were less politically correct and sensitive to ecology, and he was using a very toxic spray where you had to be gloved up, masked up. It was heavy-duty stuff. The age of DDT. And he decided to have a little smoke home in the afternoon. He took the glove off, didn't realise some of the spray had gone on his hands, then reached for a cigarette, went onto the cigarette, went into his mouth. I'm telling you, three hours later, he was found dead in his bed by his brother. Friends, there are some mistakes you can't afford to make. Getting it right about Jesus is of that order. It's got to do with eternal life. And Jesus saying, you come to me, you come to me on my terms, but come to me, come to me. Lose your life so you can gain it. Deny yourself so you can have life to the full. Come to me on my terms and you will be blessed. I really pray that 2016 will be the year that some of you, perhaps right now, will say yes to Jesus as your king and receive complete forgiveness for your sins. I really hope that 2016 will be the year where you set priorities in line with his purposes. 2016 will be the year where you start to invest in the very church that Jesus is building. 2016, where you take on whatever Jesus loves becomes what you love and whatever he hates, you hate. For be assured that it's only the church that's going to be here with his people that you can be guaranteed will be here when he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only by your spirit and your will, are we able to say, for some of us, for the very first time, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is my King and he is my Lord. It is only by your will, Father, that we've understood that only through his death and resurrection that Jesus has fully taken responsibility for our sins and we are completely forgiven. And for that we praise you. And it is only by your will, Father, that each of us are able to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, and follow you, Jesus. May we follow you, Lord, whatever it takes throughout the course of this year and beyond. But we can't do it without your power, without your saving grace without your Holy Spirit and without the help of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.